Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any hosts or guests' individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening and welcome to the Bright Not Broken radio show on the Coffee Clutch Network. We are excited to be bringing back tonight one of our favorite guests on the program, um, just an overall uh, wise, wise individual who has offered so much uh, wisdom and, and treasured information here that we're excited to talk tonight about a brand new book that he has out. His name is Dr. James Webb, and if I haven't said so before, um, he is is one of the most recognized individuals and influential psychologists in gifted education. And we have had him on the show a couple of times. I, myself, uh, Diane Kennedy, and of course my co-host and author, co-author, um, Rebecca Banks. Good evening, Rebecca. Hi, Diane. Hi, Dr. Webb. We're so well, glad hi. you're here. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be back with you. We are, and as I mentioned, we're going to be talking tonight about a brand new book. Um, Dr. Webb has written several publications and articles and all sorts of helpful things, but this one is, um, as somebody said to me once uh, this summer, we were at a conference and the book was was just coming out, and uh, someone had mentioned, you've got to get Dr. Webb's new book, and they said it's something about uh, searching for the meaning of life, and uh, and I said, well, we have to have that, and that is, I will read the full title, Searching for Meaning, Idealism, Bright Minds, Disillusionment, and Hope, and uh, as we mentioned, many bright individuals tend to seek deeper meaning in life, which can often lead to depression, and tonight, uh, Dr. Webb joins us to discuss this book, discuss existential depression, what that means, and all kinds of um Wonderful things. So, yes, welcome to the show once again, Dr. Webb. Well, thank you. Thank you. I was, uh, as I was preparing for speaking with you tonight, I was thinking about how fitting it is that the searching for meaning tying in with Bright Not Broken, because one of the themes in this book is how people who experience disillusionment and depression and the like are more likely to be those who are bright. And often, as perhaps we can talk about later, they end up being misdiagnosed as uh, bipolar or simply as a um, regular depression, if you will. And yet what's going on are issues that result directly from the fact that they are so bright, so intense, so sensitive, 
and recognize the illusions and the absurdities that are all around them in this life. So I'm particularly delighted to be here and and talking about this topic. Wonderful. Well, I'm really in. Go ahead. Go ahead. I know you're. No. You've read more of this book than I have. I couldn't get the book away from her. <laughs> um, and, and that's a good thing. That is a good thing. Um, but go ahead. I'll let you, Becky. You go ahead and and talk first. Well, I was just very excited um, at the way that you bring in Dabrowski's overexcitabilities and explain how integral that is in terms of moving from disillusionment to hope. And that's the movement in this book is absolutely beautiful because it is a study in contrast. You do take us down into the valley, but you also give us uh, a roadmap, ways to get to the mountaintop. And, and I'm so very grateful for that because it's too easy to get stuck. And I think that's what a lot of people do. It is. I'm disillusioned. It is, and and thank you. Yes, the book was not an easy one to write. I've I've worked on this book for well, in some ways, I've worked on it my entire life, and because I, these are issues have been issues and continue to be issues for me of I'm trying to make meaning out of what I see because there are anyone who's bright, anyone who is observant, notices that. There is so much hypocrisy going on in the world. There are there's a mean spiritedness in, in a lot of people. There are absurdities, and there are trivial. Um, I, I guess they're not trivial in, in one sense, but they're traditions. Like when people come up to you and say, "Well, hi, how are you?" But they really don't want to know. If you start to tell them how you are, they walk away and, and get a funny look on their face. So that people are are lying to each other, and we we live in a world uh, that we of illusions. I, I grew up in the deep south, and there were many many illusions for me growing up, as there still are. Though I think perhaps there are some, there are less. I would hope so. <clears throat> but I remember one lady in the south. <laughs> talking about the illusions that, that women put on. She she said, point blank, a little powder and paint will make you what you ain't. And, <laughs> and, we, and we put up these illusions. But then we tend to adopt these illusions as though they're, they're facts, as though they are truth. And some people come across as, I have all truth right here. I've got the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and it's in my pocket. And they, they have the, as Mark Twain said years ago, the serenity of a newborn Christian holding four aces, where <laughs> they, it, it's as though they have all of this. But the bright mind recognizes that, no, no one person has all the truth, that I, there, this really is illusory. And the more they think about it, the more they find themselves feeling anxious and different than others. And there's this intensity. There's a, there's a fellow I quote in the book. I, I, ran, I discovered him. His name is Angus Stocking. And he wrote a wonderful little piece called Confessions of a Heavy Thinker 
where he says, and this is not exactly how it is, but it's pretty close. He said, when I would go to parties, I used to just think a little bit. I was a social thinker, but then I found myself thinking more and more. And I found myself thinking sometimes, even in the morning, but I would hide the fact that I was thinking because because I was thinking too much and I knew it. And my boss told me I was thinking too much and my wife told me I needed to stop thinking because it was interfering with our relationship. <laughs> and it's just wonderful <laughs> tongue-in-cheek, but there's a lot of truth to this, where the more you think, the more you observe, and bright minds are more likely to be idealists and to think, the more likely you are to become disillusioned. And then you can get in that swamp of despair. But, and this is where Dabrowski theory comes in, uh, Dabrowski, his theory is called the theory of positive disintegration, where he pointed out that you... Bright minds often will go into a period of disintegration, and that's the disillusionment, but then you can reintegrate at a higher level. And that's what I've tried to do in the book, but that was the hardest part for me because I could easily talk about the the swamp of despair, but then how do you get to the hope? And uh, I've worked on that for quite a long while, but I, I think I found some some guidelines there from positive psychology, the new movement in mm -hmm. psychology of the last couple of decades, and particularly the more recent happiness research mm -hmm. that you may have seen in the in the media these days. And I love the way that you end the book with the happiness research because <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 it is. I mean, and I, before we we get so deep into that. I do want to point out that um, you said after the positive disintegration, the, yes. the reintegration and the almost a reconstruction, you have some excellent tools in Chapter 6. You um, talk about some ways that we can <coughs> reflect on ourselves. Uh, you have a lot of reflecting on yes. our roles, reflecting yes. on our perceptions. Um, I had a colleague when I was in university who helped me understand some of these, uh, and, and I learned a lot from him. For example, how much we get caught up in... Hello? Hey there. I just lost him. I know. We. Hello, are we back? <laughs> are you there, Becky? I'm here. Okay. But well, Jim, oh my goodness. Jim We've lost him for a second. Well, hopefully we'll get him back. I'm not sure what happened. Everything looks okay on my end. Are you back, Dr. Webb? Well, why don't you describe for us, Becky, what you were starting to talk about in his chapter, and I'm going to see if I can make sure that he's back on the line with us. Well, there are several um, tools that he offers um, in terms of looking at how to reflect on 
who we are, our perceptions of these illusions and ways to um, rediscover ourselves and kind of perhaps map a, a, a new way of of looking at life. And so he um, these tools are very concrete um, in terms of um, Jahari's windows or the personal coat of arms. I particularly like the rolls and the roll stripping. Um, some of these are are graphic organizers that are intended for us to uh, fill in and and reflect after filling in. There's no way to just um, go through these without taking the time to really think about um, what we're putting down and how we see ourselves. And so that's one thing that I really like is that he gives us some practical methods. Um, Jahari's window, for example, um, asks us what we know about ourselves and what part of ourselves are known to others. And it comes at what parts of ourselves are unknown to others. Do we keep secret? Do we um, perhaps not share because... um, these just aren't ways that we put ourselves out there. And then he asks us to reflect what's unknown to ourselves um, and ways to just, you know, through reflection, enhance the process of self-discovery. Another way is um, really looking at what you know about yourself through what he calls a personal coat of arms. And um, this one is, is a graphic organizer, as I said, and it's subdivided. And you kind of uh, look at choosing words and pictures that describe you and symbols about your social political causes. So it, it looks at things that you um, struggle with, um, things you fantasize about, three words you, that people might use to describe you, and then um, your greatest change that you've ever made, some important person in your life. And then, again, you reflect on those, and um, as you look at it, what kind of a portrait of yourself emerges. But um, the role stripping is where you really put down all your roles in life, and I like this one because I think as gifted people we tend to often to take on uh, roles and want to be perfect in all of them. Um, As we reflect on this and as we become more and more disillusioned with the roles and the um, just the way we see the illusions of other people and we start recognizing our own illusions, putting down our roles and looking at them and stripping them away bit by bit and figure which role, how it fits into the structure of your life how it fits into your identity, how central to your daily life is it. Um, do you have to do you have to keep it? Is it something you can do away with? Is it something you can merge with another role? So um Dr. Webb offers a lot of tools for reflection. Hello. Hi You're there. Back. Okay. We love you. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you could hear me. We uh, could now we can. We were just trying to find out how to call you back. We- Somehow I lost you, managed. but Becky has been well, talking about... Well, I took them on ahead, a tour Becky. of Chapter 6, Dr. <laughs> Webb. <laughs> just okay. talking about, and, um, you know, just I like the roles and um, 
and really reflecting on our roles. I, I like that. I like the graphic organizer as well that you include with um, the coat of arms mm-hmm. uh, for the yes. visual people. But I'm more of a, I'm just a more of a verbal, textual person. So looking at the roles and reflecting, and really thinking about the illusions that I even put up behind the roles and and how important those roles are to me. I mean, I just thought that was really, really constructive. So the tools that you offer in Chapter 6, I think, are really designed. You can work them together or you can work them separately depending yes. on your preferred learning style. And so yes. um, anyway, but if you want to go on and pick up, um, well, I really... The, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just thinking of the unhealthy ways that, that people cope with disillusionment, too, and um, how we can get trapped there. It's easy um, to get trapped and, and this. And, and we, we all cope with our illusions every day. We, we drift into ways of coping. We try to keep busy uh, so that we don't have to think. If I can just keep busy enough, then I don't have to really think about the purpose of my life and what my life really is is about. Uh, another way is through trying to control life. You, know, you try to control every aspect of your life, and of course the extreme of this is the obsessive-compulsive person. And it gives you the illusion that you're in control, well, until your body begins to give out on you or you suddenly discover you have a disease or uh, there's an auto accident or, and you suddenly realize, you know, I'm, I can't control everything in my life. Uh, some people try to uh, deal with their existential angst by, actually I think quite a number of people, by numbing themselves. Mm-hmm. They numb themselves with alcohol or drugs to, it, so you don't hurt so badly. Uh, others will try to cope with what what I call an ad- adrenaline rush junkie. They, they go out and, and get into these activities that are real adrenaline rush ones and it reminds you that you're alive and, and takes over it takes away the depression temporarily then there are others who uh, as i mentioned earlier they're the ones who have the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth at least they think so mm-hmm. but they don't let themselves think they they engage in compartmentalized thinking and you see this often in many religions where they they have the true religion well i don't know let's look at other ways that people think about it and if you look at a religious book whether it's the bible the quran or or what have you well what translation uh, who did the translating how much of it is is really the truth and how much of it is has been uh, influenced by people with their own perspectives and their own view of the truth about life. Now, these are heavy subjects that I'm I'm treading on here, and I know that. But I think that the thoughtful person to recognize 
these these issues. Mm-hmm. I think there are more healthy ways. Now, this is my judgment, that they're more healthy. Because the bottom line of all of this, is, as you know from the book, is each person has to find his or her own way, their own life script. I can't tell you how to live your life. You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. But I think there are some ways that that are that are healthier. For example, uh, learning not to catastrophize. Uh, people who are bright tend to be intense, and because they're intense, they if things don't go their way, it's not just a problem. It's it often feels like it's a catastrophe. Uh, letting go. Uh, Letting go of trying to control everything and living in the present moment. Well, that's some people would say, well, that's an old Buddhist concept. Yes, it is. But it's very, very relevant. Developing authentic relationships, at least with a few people, authentic relationships where, which are different than the superficial ones that you so often have with so many people. Uh, and those are the, the superficial ones are the ones where we particularly put up the illusions. We get all gussied up. We put on our coat and tie or our dress and the heels and, and put up an illusion. And you, becoming aware of yourself and the illusions that structure your life, I think, is necessary. But then to begin trying to find your own life meaning. What, what is it that's really valuable? If, if you were to write a last lecture right now, or if you were to write your obituary, what would you want it to say about the meaning of your life? This ties in. Most people, when they do this, they realize it's, it's not about things. It's about relationships. And it's about how I have had an influence on the lives of others and that I'm going to be living, leaving a legacy for others, a personal legacy that, well, in the book I call it rippling, mm-hmm. where uh, your life has, has an effect on others. And you can... Even way beyond what you what you're aware of, I, I, I find this at conferences where someone will come up to me and say, "You know, I I heard you talk one time, and I went and I talked to my son about this, and that little nugget that you said has made such an influence in her life." Well, I had no idea, but yet that's the rippling. So what, how do you want to live your life so that there's a continuity of generations and a rippling that will affect others? Uh, those, are the, those are the styles that I hope more people will try to adopt to give their life meaning. If you can, and I know we've touched on this briefly, if you will go a little deeper for us on, and we've actually talked about this with another guest, Dr. Uh, Patricia Gatto-Walden, a few weeks ago, but Mm -hmm. it's such an important 
important point, and the term is new, I know, to some people who don't understand it, especially in these terms. Give us a little uh, a little more depth on what existential depression is, how that ah, differs okay. from what we see as traditional depression. Okay. Well, first of all, I, uh, people need to know that depression in all Western societies is increasing and has for the last 70 or so years. And um, I, I think that it has a lot to do with how our society has changed and ties in with exist- and existential ways that often are not recognized by the mental health professionals. What I mean by that is our society has, with all of the technological developments, become so fast-paced and with such an information explosion that some things have happened that raise existential issues. For example, we find ourselves with the, the technological advances now reacting and dealing with machines. We're interacting with our computers, our cell phones, and the like, rather than face-to-face with people. In addition, and we're doing this in, in ways that seem extremely urgent, mm-hmm. but it's like um, uh, Steve Covey said years ago, one of the, the errors people make is they, they deal with the seemingly important, uh, seem, with the seemingly urgent, but forget the important. Uh, and so we react to the, the urgency of our machines, and it interferes with our relationships. The second is, with the information explosion that's come from this, we find ourselves being exposed to things that are unthinkable, or at least should be unthinkable. Mm -hmm. Things that 50, 70, 80 years ago, we we didn't know about. We didn't know about the the genocide that's going on in Africa. We didn't know about the, the murders, the rapes, the gassing of people. The, what we're doing to our environment, the um, political scandals, the, uh, the murders, it just is, it, it's unbelievable the extent of misery that we're being confronted with. And we find ourselves thinking, how, how, how can this world be and, and how can I make any difference in a world that is so messed up, how can any one person do this? It makes me really angry to see what all is going on around. But, and this, this ties in with the depression, anger and depression are really very closely related. Mm-hmm. There, there's an old saying that if you scratch a cynic hard enough, you find an idealist underneath, the angry cynic. Yeah. Uh, Depression is either being angry at yourself, where you're saying to yourself, oh, I'm so stupid, I'm dumb, I'm hopeless. You're you're beating up on yourself, that's the anger. Or being angry at something, but feeling helpless, feeling unable to do anything about it. And that's where you really get into the existential part. I'm angry at what I see in this world, how people treat people, mistreat people. 
but what can I do? And so the anger rolls over into a helplessness, so I feel alone and helpless in an absurd world where I wonder if my existence has any meaning. Fifty years from now, is anyone going to know I lived? A hundred years from now, will my life have have had any meaning? What's it all about? Is this it? You, You go through the motions, play some roles, and then you die. Wow. You know... And we've talked a lot about and to Temple Grandin, and I know you've had the pleasure of yes. meeting her. And oh yes, in, I love her. In her in her movie, the Temple Grandin movie that HBO yes. produced with all the awards, that is a line in the movie, and it I mean it was a very true line. It was one of the more accurate things. Everything was accurate, as according to Temple, but this was just so important to her, and that's the line where she says, "I want to know that my life." has served a purpose that I yes. have I have meant something I have um yes done something in my life that has given meaning to others yes rather than the triviality of just going through the motions you know for so many people Woody Allen long ago made this great statement he said for most people 80% of life is just showing up they just go through the motions. Ah, oh, my. But for people like Temple Grandin, who's an idealist, she wants her life to mean, have meant something. And in the book, I talk about the importance of thinking about your own ethical will. What are you going to leave? You're going to leave some tangible possessions, but what are you going to leave beyond that? What legacy? And that's the ties in with the rippling. Now, the the existential depression that I mentioned, I kind of described uh, in some detail, and I, I worry a bit that I may have gotten some of the listeners into their existential depression. <laughs> and I, and I'm, I'm saying that only somewhat jokingly because no. most thoughtful people have experienced thoughts like this or absolutely like this. And... Once you awaken, dear Rebecca, are you still there? <laughs> I'm still here. Okay, we've maybe it's something on his line. We've lost him at a really important point. <laughs> I know. I know. Oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry for the technical problems tonight. Everything looks as though we're okay, but for some reason, we're, we've, hopefully he will come back again. And um, well, one, one thing, one point, um, once you've awakened that awareness, it, you, can't, you can't put it away. But one thing that he does say in his book about... Uh, hope and happiness and contentment is that each of us, and I'm just reading this, must repeatedly make personal choices concerning how to deal with disappointment and faltering idealism, as well as determining one's place in the universe. And he says that fundamental choice, we have basically 
three major conclusions that we can reach, that life is meaningless, um, but only some individuals are sensitive and perceptive enough to realize that it has no meaning. The second is that life um, is meaningless. The belief that life is meaningless is an illusion in that in truth life is meaningful. We just have to discover the meaning. Our life is a journey of discovery. And the third one is that life can have meaning but only if we choose to give it meaning. And so um, those are three choices. And I, when I was reading that, it, I also thought of Temple, Diane, um, in terms of the life having meaning but choosing to give it meaning. Um, she, she made the comment how she wanted her life to stand for something, to have meant something. And um, I thought they captured that very well in the movie. And um, I think it's a choice that people... Um, who are prone to this existentialist, existentialism, the existentialist depression, excuse me, um, it, it, it does become a choice. And um, like Dr. Webb was saying, if we get too stuck, um, at times it can be misperceived as um, uh, um, bipolar or it can be misperceived as as um, overwhelming depression, and people are misdiagnosed as a result of it um, because well, well, the misunderstanding, of course. So, Right. And as you pointed out, Becky, with Temple, it is so important for her and, and to the point that um, sometimes I think, you know, and we've seen it as she's become so popular that um it it really takes a toll and and i wonder if that is the other side of this this form of depression that um sometimes when so i don't know if i'm getting this out right when you're like on the mountaintop and you know then afterwards you see that you know it it kind of wears you out and it takes something from you when you give too much does that Makes sense. Um, yeah, and I, I think it, especially even when we're in our area of giftedness, but when you have gifted people who aren't even truly tapping in to their areas where their their sensitivities are, well, people who have who have careers they go to they they work at every day, but they look around them and they see the futility. It, it can become something that is that traps. I think we people. have Dr. Webb back. Yay! Oh yes, yes, I, I hey. dialed back in. Good. <laughs> but you're absolutely right, and and I know very many bright people, bright adults who uh, most probably have experienced a feeling of in the work situation, thinking, "Oh my word, I'm working with a bunch of dolts. Can't they see <laughs> what we need to do?" And, uh, so yes, the existential issues certainly uh, certainly arise there. And and when they, I think when when people are not working in their area of passion or even yes. when they are, you yes, there are times when they see beyond the roles, they see the social um, masks that people wear. They see that if people, perhaps the idealism inside, if people were just all pursuing the idealistic 
dream rather than personal agendas. Um, I wish we were. Become, yes, I do too. Oh, how I do. It can become quite frustrating and, and depressing. And you mentioned earlier about how people are frequently misdiagnosed because yes. of these. And I wondered if you could go into that for us and explain how this kind of plays out in um, perhaps not, not necessarily the most healthy of ways either um, in, in, in trying to seek treatment and help for this. Um, people well, can get on a path that can, you know, change their lives forever too. Well, often, uh, the, as I, th- I mentioned earlier, the existential de- part of the depression gets overlooked. And the, the child I mentioned earlier who uh, was just six years old and experiencing existential depression, it's most psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors are not likely to think of a six-year-old as being capable of contemplating existential issues. Uh, but they do. And uh, Lita Hollingworth, if you go back in the history of gifted education, she's, she recognized this back in the 1930s of how children as young as six can and do worry about uh, issues, uh, idealistic issues. Uh, unfortunately, many of these kids get medicated and medicated in ways that are not really helpful. Uh, what they need, they may need, although I'm, I'm reluctant with children in particular for medication, but certainly with adults, they may need some medication to take some of the rough edge off the feelings so that they can be managed they, mm-hmm. they can manage their own feelings, but what they need most of all is someone who will go alongside with them on the journey mm-hmm. and help restore and maintain hope and help them construct their life script, help them learn uh, not to catastrophize like we were talking about earlier. Uh, some of the other misdiagnoses where the existential part gets left out is where you have like with Temple Grandin whom we were talking about earlier you have someone who's on the Asperger's uh, spectrum and the Asperger's part gets focused on perhaps the Asperger's behaviors but the the thoughtful idealistic existential part gets overlooked mm-hmm. you can have the same for other kinds of twice exceptional children where the focus is on uh, whatever supposedly supposed disability there is. And unfortunately, as you two know, uh, very few psychologists, psychiatrists, pediatricians, and the like have received any training about the particular characteristics of bright, gifted people, including the existential aspects that we're talking about tonight. So this makes it very challenging for for parents who want to who want to help their children who are going through existential issues. I was so what speaking is, with what some advice? of my mothers today. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I go ahead. I was speaking with a mother today about her nine year old who, at age 
seven or eight had looked at her and said, Mommy, is everyone always this sad? And this Mm. is an exceptionally bright child who is just, you know, at three years old, turned to her mom and said, did you know that owls are nocturnal animals? (laughs) You know, um, that's just an inkling at three of the things that, that she reflects. She's a deep thinker. And her mom, as we were talking, she was very relieved to know because I was just explaining that the the giftedness in many ways is a psychology and Mm. that there's an aspect to understanding these children. And um, we were, you know, we were on lunch break and at the end she just was very grateful. She said, you you described my daughter to a T, but, you know, we were talking about some of the social challenges that she faces because she doesn't have a peer group. Fortunately, as adults, we're able to to find peer groups in, in different areas, but children are so often lockstep by grade That's level. Right. That's um, right. That, that it's very difficult for them. Um, but on the subject of adults, one thing that um, you talk about in your book, and you've mentioned a couple of times, is constructing a life script. And I wondered if you could share with our listeners um, some of your suggestions and and some of your methods for going about, first of all, what is a life script, and then how how does one go about constructing Mm, it? Okay, sure. Well, most of us, I guess probably all of us, start out with the life script that's given to us by our parents, our, our family, our neighborhood, our culture, uh, and they tell us what's expected, how we should live our life, and what behaviors are good, what are what are bad ones, and this this is important because it gives structure to society. Without this, we would have chaos. But a lot of the a lot of the traditions that are handed down are nonsensical, um, if you really stop and think. So to construct your life script, part of it gets, it's like the role stripping. Look at the traditions, how you spend your life, and see what how central it is in your life, and is this really what you want to do? recognize that you have the power, uh, I guess even the obligation, to choose how you want to live your life. Do you really want to spend your life uh, going to the same place on the same day at the same time simply because that's what's expected? So it's um, it's a matter of really looking at what you're doing and and making conscious decisions but it's it can be kind of painful i i grew up in the deep south as i mentioned earlier and and growing up this was back in the uh, 50s and 60s and segregation was in vogue then that was the law of the land in the deep south uh, that was the tradition that had been handed down I found myself questioning that and challenging it to make my own life script different. 
the reason I'm mentioning this is because when you challenge a tradition that's been handed down to you, it's going to make other people around you uncomfortable. I know it made my parents uncomfortable. It made many of my friends uncomfortable. When I challenge the the cherished traditions of the old deep south about relationships between blacks and whites. Uh, but that was how I chose my life script. Uh, you can choose and need to choose your own, but be aware when you do, it's going to probably make other people uncomfortable for a while. I would also recommend to people, there's a, Stephanie Tolan has written a wonderful book on this. And if you simply would Google uh, or do an Internet search for Stephanie Tolan, T-O-L-A-N, and Life Script, it will, it will come up. She, um, I know we have um, talked about her when Dr. Um, Walden was on. We talked about her new book, Off the Charts. So yes. this is a different book Stephanie has written? That's right. It's a different book. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah, Stephanie is a wonderful uh, spokesperson in the gifted field, particularly for highly profoundly gifted. Well, this has been just very deep, but just wonderful to, um, I think, to touch on this subject because it is something that is sort of like the underlying psychology, as you mentioned, that, you know, when we get caught up in the outward behaviors and even as adults, you know, we look at these kids in their potentials, we look at these adults in their potential, and sometimes it really takes getting to the history and getting to the root of what's, yes. you know, what makes the person. And um, I can't recommend this book enough, Searching for Meaning. It is just wonderful, um, I think, for professionals, for parents, and certainly for individuals. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate the kind words. I would, by the way, I, I wanted to, because I know there are listeners out there who either they or their children are going through this, give just a couple of bits of, a couple of suggestions. The first is a very simple one, and that is please touch. Hold, cuddle, touch. Uh, the person who is going through some existential depression, probably the worst single thing about existential depression is you feel alone, disconnected. Mm -hmm. And the most fundamental way to connect is to touch. But our society has gotten to where we don't dare touch other people like we used to. Their corporations have corporate policies. Teachers are, are fearful of touching the children in their classrooms. Uh, I don't touch another person's child. Uh, but it's so important. Listen and accept their questioning. Help them feel help them realize that they're not the only one who has had thoughts like this and you can guide them with bibliotherapy and help them understand their giftedness the the brightness the oes the overexcitabilities and how this can lead to them feeling in somewhat of a minority but that that's okay so i i just wanted to uh throw those out because i think that that might be helpful to some people. Absolutely. That's very helpful. 
And if people wanted to get the book, they uh, it is out now. You can get it through the publisher, Great Potential Press, at greatpotentialpress.com, or I know it's on Barnes & Noble website, and um, barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com or uh, many local bookstores. So I hope well, people John, will find it helpful. Oh, <laughs> uh, I can't even begin to explain the uh, depth, complexity, and yet the ease of, of reading it, but how it requires people to revisit it because it is such a thought-provoking, uh, emotionally, rock, it rocks a person to their core, someone who is truly, truly searching for meaning and um, who's experienced a disillusionment, but also um, knowing that there's hope. That is, that is just such a powerful message you leave us with. And I am so grateful for this work, Dr. Webb. Thank you very much. I think I'm so glad you added that, Becky. And I know um, that I, I think one of the most important things you just said was the word hope. And that also, and Dr. Webb, you pointed this out, It sometimes it is as simple as knowing that although you may be different, you may be exceptional, that there are others like you. Yes. That seems to be um, absolutely the most just important important thing that we could do. Um, I think we're going to end it here, and um, we're so apologize for our technical difficulty tonight. It looks like we may have lost our contact with Dr. Webb again. So, but I, I think we were pretty well done. So we're going to wrap up yeah. from here. And thank you, Becky, for sharing your own personal feelings about this book and of course we will continue to recommend it yes thanks diane okay and to dr webb who will be listening i'm sure thank you so much for being on our program once again we just appreciate your wisdom and and sharing it with us and we're so very grateful and um of course um thankful to the coffee clutch on behalf of Marianne Rousseau we thank her for having this opportunity to share with our listeners this information thank you all and have a wonderful evening good night